a lucid, intelligent, well-thought-out objection. Thank you, Your Honor. Overruled. Good morning, and welcome to episode 253 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Sam Miller, and moving his stool is Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> ben, how's that stool doing? Uh, I'm not actually sitting on a stool. That'd be weird if, I, if, if my computer chair was just a stool. I sit on a stool. I work from a stool all day, every day. Really? Wow. Yeah. Huh. I, I stand near a stool a lot of that time, but yeah, it's either stool or near stool. Huh. Is it a, does it re- revolve? Is it a rotating? It's not. It's like from, it's like from like 1908. It's, <laughs> it's literally like a 1908 stool. Don't you want some back support? Sometimes? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, that's, that's where my computer is. <laughs> right. <So, laughs> I'd I keep my computer at a counter because then it's easy to sort of glance at it as I'm walking around the house. Mm. And you know, if I want to move to a desk, I could, but then I'd have to unplug a thing and plug it in and that sounds like I, a lot of work it's the i would say that the situation is not um pref, is not the best is not the best case right now to I, be fair i would say that also okay okay uh what do you want to talk about today uh i want to talk about whether it's ever a good thing if an owner overrules a general manager and i want to talk about justin verlander mm, okay um i like yours let's go with yours all right. Uh, so this was inspired by the latest Yankees move that seems to have been dictated by a Steinbrenner uh, over Brian Cashman's wishes. Um, it it kind of he's he's uh, he's been very direct about this Cashman uh, in the past when it's happened, say with Rafael Soriano. Uh, he didn't want to sign him. He wanted to keep the draft pick and was overruled and was very open about it, surprisingly open about it. Um, And the same thing seems to be the case with Soriano. He wasn't quite so open about it, but he uh, he was asked about it by Joel Sherman uh, of The Post, and he said, I would say we are in a desperate time. Ownership wants to go for it. I didn't want to give up a young arm, but I understand the desperate need we have for offense, and Soriano will help us. The bottom line is this guy makes us better. Did ownership want him? Absolutely yes. Does he make us better? Absolutely yes. This is what Hal wants, and this is why we are doing it. Uh, and- Jeez. Cashman, <laughs> Cashman can say anything he's a, he wants. He's a wild card. He'll, he's, he, yeah, I, I guess it's, I mean, he has quite a lot of tenure. He's been there forever, and uh, I guess he must either not care so much about his job security or have really great job security. I wonder what Cashman, if Cashman, let's say Cashman got fired for this. I mean, he's not going to, but like, let's just say that Steinbrenner was so mad that he fired Cashman. I wonder how in demand Cashman is. It's always been yeah. sort of hard to get a read on, yeah. on how good he is. Mm-hmm. And it's also hard. Like if you were a small market team, um, would you look at him as a guy with great success or would you go, well, we can't give him nearly what he's had. I mean, he's never, he's never been a GM of a mm-hmm. team like ours. So maybe he doesn't have relevant experience. Yeah. I, I think he's a good GM. I think he's done a lot of good things. Uh, and just, I mean, just the fact that he's survived this long in this market speaks to his skills at something, uh, whether it's managing the media or managing ownership or whatever it is, just surviving this long. Um, yeah, I, I like him too. I, I generally think he's good. It's it's a little harder to tell. Yeah, it him. is. And I, I hope we, but also, I hope we like get to wonder, see him in a different situation someday just to kind of see how he would handle a, a 
a smaller budget and that'd be that'd be fun is he a guy who you think would have to take another gm job or does he just go straight to you know team president territory is he is he has yeah. he now has he now re, like is is yankees gm now the way that he's done and especially considered like the top gm job and mm-hmm. there's nowhere to go but higher in the front office yeah maybe i could see him not wanting to have to do a, a small market thing with all the restrictions after he's had a big payroll for a long time or maybe he would want to prove that he could do it because people are always saying that we don't know whether he could do it so maybe he would see it as a challenge i don't know um but so uh so this is kind of a a pattern uh in 2005 there was kind of a a power play where he was going to leave maybe and he basically told george steinbrenner that he wanted to have more control over uh baseball decisions and and it seems like he did and kind of expanded their their department and uh, did things in a slightly different way. But there are still these times when it seems like he is overruled. Um, and this article mentions some others that that make him sound smart, that in most of these cases, it would have been better if they had done what he recommended. Uh, according to this article, he recommended that they not resign Alex Rodriguez after he opted out. Uh, that obviously would have would have saved them quite a bit of trouble these days. Um, it's been going pretty well. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, he also this says advised ownership to re-sign Russell Martin and sign Nate Shearholtz, um, and they didn't want to do that. And he was against the Ichiro Suzuki re-signing, uh, which has not been a disaster or anything. Um, but Shearholtz maybe would have been cheaper and, and just as good. Uh, so. I wonder, because, you know, when we hear about these things, I feel like we automatically assume that it's a sign of dysfunction, that you want either everyone to be on the same page or you want the general manager to have the final say and you want the owner to get out of the way and let the GM do his thing. And if he thinks that the GM isn't doing a good job, he can get a new one. But as long as he's around and he's the guy, he should be making these sort of decisions. Um and I wonder whether there's ever an exception to that, whether whether there is uh, something that the owner might consider or another interest of the team that the owner might consider that the general manager might not consider um, that that could be something that you would want to take into account. Um, just, you know, like attendance is down. Uh, in New York this season and they're, they're not scoring any runs and it's uh, Yankees fans seem to find it kind of hard to watch them score two runs every day. Um, And so maybe it's, it's the right kind of baseball decision to uh, hold on to your young arm and not trade for another guy who's 37, 38. Um, You know, if like, if you were in a smaller market, it wouldn't be the right move. And, uh, so maybe the, the owner looks at it and says, well, Ichiro, um, he gets us all these, you know, he gets us a lot more, uh, interest in Japan and we get a lot more advertising and, uh, people buy Yankees caps and we make a lot more money that way. Um, and maybe that's something that an owner should be taking into account since baseball teams are a business and the idea at least partially is to make some money. Uh, and there could be times, I guess, when when the the right baseball decision might not be the 
the right decision to sort of maximize the, the profitability of the team. Although, you know, you would think that long-term winning is, is probably the best thing you could do to make money. But I wonder whether there are ever times when it's not automatically a, a sign that something is amiss and, you know, it's a dysfunctional organization and, and they're not communicating. You wouldn't think that the GM would be blind to the need to make money, though, either. I mean, just yeah, as right. winning generally leads to more money, the GMs all want more money, and they know that more money in their mind probably leads to being able to do more things. So you, you wouldn't think that that's like a totally foreign idea to Cashman mm -hmm. either, although I don't know how much it comes into play. Maybe uh, maybe because uh, the owner and you know other departments are looking at these things, he doesn't really have to think about it maybe he sort of chooses to outsource that to other departments mm -hmm. it's hard to say um but yeah i mean I, like I, I feel like there probably are instances like that my guess is that they are a lot rarer than probably uh, you know people maybe particularly people whose job it is to kind of think of along these lines would think like if you're like, like, let's just say, okay, let's say hypothetically that Steinbrenner in his head goes, hey, anytime there's a baseball decision, that's that's Cashman's job. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, when it comes to things like branding and promoting the brand, well, that's that's my job. Cashman's not thinking about that. That's my job. And mm -hmm. so you wonder whether whether there's a uh, there would be a tendency like the, the you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of a thing mm -hmm. where if, if that's where he's focused Maybe like if he considers that his responsibility, he might be thinking that there's a lot more of those opportunities than there really are. Like I would imagine uh, that Soriano, for instance, I don't know if that I don't know if Soriano is necessarily an example of this, but either really either Soriano, Raphael or Alfonso, mm -hmm. neither one, neither one is going to be pushing, you know, pushing season ticket sales no. or merchandising, and other than if other than if they think, well, if we have a lost season. And we spend the last month and a half, 15 games out. That hurts us. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Cashman basically knows that, too. I, I, I guess that it's probably more uh, – I, I would say that I would consider ownership's role in uh, balancing long-term versus short-term financial things, you know, branding things, to be a significant area where they would have some expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they if you think that – if you think that there's a long-term – uh, penalty to to losing, um, then maybe you'd step in. Mm -hmm. Generally, generally, I, I don't really hold it against owners. They they want to have fun. This is what they're into. Mm -hmm. um, but also, generally, uh, you figure um, not only are is the GM theoretically hired because he's better at this stuff, um, but the GM is surrounded by people who are advising him constantly, mm -hmm. and the ownership is surrounded by you know marketing and concessions and facilities and you know they're, they're not necessarily talking to the scouts and looking at reports and reviewing video and getting the input of 30 guys in the front office mm -hmm. so there's that too yeah uh and and the yankees don't really ever get mentioned in the same breath as the smart sabermetric teams um, like no one ever lists them along with the Rays or, or the A's or the Indians or all these sort of early adopters. But I, I mean, just having worked there for a while and I'm not 
giving anything away, but I mean, they they do all of the same things that that those teams do, and they have all of the same smart people doing the same smart things. So, I feel like they're they're just as capable of finding those inefficiencies and and making smart moves and being on the cutting edge of everything. But you don't really hear of other teams. Uh, I guess I mean, you never hear like Stu Sternberg intervened and and told Andrew Friedman to sign some guy. Um, and, and when people talk about why the Rays are so successful, they often mention the idea that everyone is, is on the same page and everyone has the same philosophy from Sternberg to Madden, top to bottom. It's, it's like everyone is kind of in lockstep uh, one way or another. And uh, so it's something that we... I guess we don't think about enough. Like in a couple of days, uh, we're going to be running a, a piece at BP, a guest piece on uh, how well GMs have done in the trade market, just kind of comparing the wins they got to the wins they gave up over time. And and it's uh, it's not always totally fair to attribute all of that to the GM. Sometimes there's, there's this other stuff going on where it's not really their call. Um, and really throughout Cashman's tenure in New York, there's always been this this kind of divide between Cashman moves and Steinbrenner moves and trying to figure out which was which. Um, and I wonder if maybe this is uh, maybe maybe this is why the the GM getting bumped up to team president role is a is a good thing. Um, you know, like Epstein or uh, Mark Shapiro or Kenny Williams kind of graduating from GM to that president role where he kind of has a he has a role on the business side and the baseball side. Um, maybe that's sort of the ideal arrangement where you could have that person who then has both perspectives and is paying close attention to both things and can kind of be the, the liaison between the owner and the GM or uh, you know, the baseball people will trust him when he says that the business thing matters and, and the base, the business people will trust him when he says the baseball stuff matters. Maybe that, maybe that's why that role has, has become more popular lately. If it has. The tricky thing is that I'm sort of in my head trying to think about what it's like in other industries or at, at you know, at, in another company and you do want the buck to stop you know, at the top. And in a lot of cases, that's really smart. But I think what's different here is that nobody works their way up. I mean, a couple people have, but basically nobody works their way up to owner. These are not Mm -hmm. the best baseball minds who have just graduated to ownership. Like they didn't start the company, you know, they didn't invent the product. Mm -hmm. They bought it because they were rich in something else. They're essentially just super fans. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they're, you know, they're maybe they look at it as investments, but you know, really they're super fans. Um, and so in this case, the GM is the closest thing to the self-made CEO in an organization or, you know, maybe the president is, but you know, like the baseball guy is right. Mm -hmm. And the owner is just not that it's just not really comparable to other industries. It's, it's much more like, you know, well, I don't it's, it's not like other industries at all. It's not like really any organization Mm -hmm. at all in that sense. And so I think that's probably why it's so tempting for owners to do this and probably why we don't generally find it good business. Yeah, and it's and it's a GM skill that's maybe <laughs> underrated uh, and maybe it's underrated because we can't analyze it very well. But, um, you know, to, to finesse your owner or to stop a meddlesome, meddlesome owner from intervening and convincing him that 
that your move is the right move or convincing him to spend a little more money when you think you need to spend a little more money, that's uh, that's an important skill for a GM to have. It's not just about evaluating players better than everyone else and you know finding undervalued guys. It's also about kind of managing that that GM owner relationship. I wonder who provided that list of Cashman unapproved moves. <laughs> I, like, I wonder if it was Cashman. <laughs> well, I wouldn't I wouldn't put anything past him at this point. Because it's 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 pretty nicely cropped. <laughs> yes, yes, right. He has never he's never recommended a bad one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean Nate Sherholtz. I mean when Nate Sherholtz gets in there, you that's <laughs> that's that's suspicious. When I heard that Nate Sherholtz was good enough to make that list, it was suspicious. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> All right. I mean, how many players has Cashman wanted over the thousands that he has wanted and didn't get, right? But Nate Sherold conveniently makes the list. Uh, not not that I'm casting aspersions on anybody no. uh, who I'm sure everybody is acting in good faith here. Mm-hmm. All right. My turn? Yep. All right. So episode 171 of this podcast, uh, after opening night, we talked about extensions and we talked about Justin Verlander. And I'm going to quote from the transcript. When Ryan Howard signed his extension, one of the things that was so criticized about it was was that it wasn't even going to kick in for two years and the Phillies didn't get much of a discount and they didn't have to sign him so early that they didn't have to jump two years into the future to make this move. Some of the same criticism was lodged against Travis Hafner's deal with the Indians. One of the nice things about having a player under club control is you get to wait two years. Is the only difference between this move and the Howard move that we didn't like Howard and that we do like Verlander? At the time, that was considered bad management. Now it's considered great management. And so neither one of us concluded that that was the case. I was I threw that out as sort of a discussion starter, but we decided that we liked the Verlander deal on its merits mm-hmm. um, a lot more than the Howard deal on its merits, timing aside, and that timing isn't necessarily the crucial issue in either one. Justin Verlander is now, um, you know, it, he's he is also a year and a half from his extension kicking in, and he is also kind of not doing very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to uh, cherry pick a time period, and that time period is his last 15 starts. Um, in his last 15 starts, 5-2-2 ERA, um, eight strikeouts per nine, four walks per nine, uh, uh, 1.1 homers per nine. Um, just sort of blah, non-dominating stuff. Mm-hmm. And his velocity is down yeah. about a mile and a half this year, more than two miles from two years ago. Uh, almost three miles from three years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to revisit. Do we think that this is simply you can't predict baseball at work and that Verlander is either having a unpredictable slump that he will bust out of or is done, but you know who could have seen it coming? Or was that point correct? Should the Tigers have been scolded for giving big money to a guy who was two years away from free agency? Yeah, I wrote I wrote an article when they signed him to that extension, and and I I think if I remember right, my conclusion was basically that uh, that it's always risky to give this this kind of move to anyone to any pitcher for for that long a period, but that um, I, I tried to find comparables for Verlander, and there there weren't all that many just because he had been so good, but but looking at people who were kind of in the same range at roughly the same age, uh, a lot of them aged pretty well. And and a lot of them kind of would have been worth this sort of deal and maybe declined, but still pitched at a a pretty high level. And, and that kind of just combined with the fact that he was still 
pretty much pitching more or less at his peak. He hadn't shown a, a huge sign of decline, really. And I remember there was a, a slight velocity decline, and we were kind of talking about whether it counted or not because Verlander seems like a guy who kind of uh, will at times throw less hard than he has to um, and then and then save it up for the end of a game, and suddenly he'll be throwing even harder. Um I think I said that I was I was less worried about a guy when his peak velocity hasn't declined, even if his average velocity has declined a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess uh, he didn't seem like a, a terrible candidate for this kind of thing, if anyone is a candidate for this kind of thing. But I guess I'm kind of, I've sort of soured on the idea of of extending anyone, I guess, that long before you have to. Uh, because the idea is is that you should get some sort of sizable discount on the deal when you do that because you're taking on this risk. Um, and I don't I don't know that that teams have gotten discounts that are commensurate with the risk that they've taken on for these kind of deals. Yeah, I sort of feel that way too. I think with, like I think with Pedroia they probably did uh-huh. and. And, and, you know, I think that's one thing, like, everybody is kind of, it, it felt like when Pedroia signed his extension, there was a lot of uh, talk about, you know, what a discount he had taken and what a great deal the Red Sox had gotten. And it does yeah. seem like, though, if you look at those years in, and you know, what, what they will be, like, right now, he's clearly worth much more than that. And uh, he, you know, deserves a lot more than that, or I guess he is, wor- you know, he's worth a lot more than that. But... Um, it's it's hard to know exactly how much to uh, to calculate the, the the two years in the future kind of unnecessarily doing this factor um, and I don't know that Pedroia actually got that much of a discount he might have I'm not saying that he didn't I'm saying that it's it's uh, like like I would have to sort of think through how to do that math mm-hmm. to figure it out um, but I I don't take it as a given that he did and and yeah I think that there's a tendency. Uh, for these guys to basically get what they should get only um, I don't know like so like Verlander signed this extension and you tack it on to the two years that he still had and you look at it and you go yeah that's a that's about right that's what he should be making for the year and I think uh, that's how people see it they go oh well it's six years or seven years and 20 million a year and that's what he's worth Mm -hmm. but it's just it's not really that it's the, the two years are so valuable for a club to evaluate what the player is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that you can quite put a price tag. Well, you can't, but I don't know that we have <laughs> quite put a price tag on what those two years of waiting are actually worth. They're, they're probably worth a ton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, especially <laughs> for a pitcher. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glancing over what I wrote, and I said that he would he would basically have to pitch like a Hall of Famer to justify the contract, which uh, is kind of logical because he had been pitching like a Hall of Famer, and so he was paid to continue pitching like he was pitching. Um, and I guess when you when you have a when you have a guy like Verlander who it's not one of those very early career extensions where a guy hasn't gotten paid yet, uh, and it's like. Now this is the contract that is going to make him and his family financially secure forever. Um, you know, Verlander had already made a lot of money uh, before that. I mean, he he made twenty million dollars last season. Um, 
so when you have a guy like that who's coming off uh, a Cy Young Award win and then a Cy Young Award runner-up finish um, and is already making a lot of money, doesn't seem like a great candidate for for a guy who's going to take a discount. Even if even if he should, he's probably at that point he's thinking, I already have a ton of money and and I'm and and a professional athlete and a pitcher who's been so successful probably isn't so inclined to to weigh the risk and say I you know my career could end tomorrow. He's thinking I've been the best pitcher in baseball for a few years now and I feel fine and and in a couple of years I'll get a massive contract and cash in and and. Probably, I mean, he might in the back of his head. I'm sure every pitcher is thinking uh, something could happen, and my arm is sore, and what does it mean? But um, after having that much success and being so durable, I would think his his confidence would be at a at a high water point, and he's already financially secure. So I don't know if that's a great candidate to get a, a discount from. Yeah, the, when the young guys do it, when they you sign a young guy, what you're doing is taking advantage of baseball's you know collective bargaining bargaining agreement. And when you're, uh, but it seems like when these sort of guys who are already post free agent uh, sign these extensions a few years in advance, it, what it feels like, and I don't know that it is, but what it feels like is just the club is so afraid of losing them that the mm-hmm. clubs say, oh, well, we can't afford to let this guy go. He's the face of the franchise, mm-hmm. um, and so it feels like kind of. Uh, it feels like like maybe GMing scared more than like taking advantage of of what you have. Mm-hmm. And there is there's value to that, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the first topic. When you have a, a face of the franchise guy, there's there's a lot of extra value to that in terms of just you know fan loyalty and people spending money on jerseys and and all that sort of thing. Um, some people like Vince Gennaro have made some attempts to to calculate what the value of that is and and come up with fairly large numbers for for some players who are famous and have been with a team their whole career like Verlander um so there's something to that but but yeah I I don't know I I'm trying to think of a of a contract that has been structured like this and has worked out really well um I mean, the, the Howard deal kind of colors everything that I'm thinking about. Um, but it, it does seem like there is just a, a lot of value to that extra evaluation time uh, with a pitcher who's, you know, 30-ish and, and could start falling off or breaking down or losing velocity. And I wonder what Verlander would, would make now or would make this offseason if they were to sign him to a, an extension. I would think it would be a, a smaller number or it certainly should be um so yeah in retrospect seems like a a risky a risky move he's still pretty good though yeah i, I mean i'm not i'm not writing him off or anything howard was still pretty good at this point actually when when he had done i mean he wasn't as good as verlander but yeah howard didn't howard didn't really collapse until like what Basically, it was his injury, which I think was the last play before his new contract kicked in, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, he, yeah, he probably had uh, a less encouraging group of comparable players, I would think. Yes. Or his, yes. his, his skill set was yeah, not. Yeah, it still remains that Verlander is better than Howard and that uh, the deal was on its face. 
better for Verlander than Howard. But anyway, all right, that'll do. I really, Does that do? Will that yeah, do? No? I, just about. I, I have such dread about pitchers now. Like, yeah. whenever a pitcher is kind of at his peak, I, I'm sort of savoring it because it feels like you're, you're like one start away from it just being over. Um, it could come at any time. And it, it seems like, a, I mean, a guy like Verlander seems, uh, seems invincible for, for three seasons or so or four seasons. And then suddenly he strings together a few bad starts and his velocity is down and, and it's, it's scary. It's like Halliday just kind of falling apart all of a sudden after seeming, seeming immortal. Yeah, if you ever want to depress yourself, just <laughs> go look at Clayton Kershaw's comps. You'd use whatever 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 metrics you want. Just go look at his comps and see how many didn't make the Hall of Fame. Yeah. It's a bummer. Yes. All right. All right, now we're done. See you tomorrow. Emails podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We will answer them in a couple days. <laughs>